This is a really weird one for me to cover. Every now and again when I'm doing a, a playthrough of a game, especially for my review stuff on the streams, I find myself thinking, well, I'm enjoying this, but I can't really particularly praise it, right? Like, I can't go out of my way to say, oh, this is amazing. But I'm still enjoying it, but not a lot. It's it's that weird sort of feeling of, it's not great, but it's good. But I can't really think of how to quantify that. This game... Uh, this is going to sound really weird, but one of the biggest things I was reminded of in this game was Dragon Age 2. Hear me out. Because, in my opinion, Dragon Age 2 actually had pretty decent combat. Uh, it was it was fun. It was enjoyable combat. But it wasn't... There wasn't a lot of depth there. And there wasn't a lot of actual difficulty. Enemies never really got more varied or interesting. It was just, here's a guy with more HP who hits more, right? Or here's a whole bunch of guys and a bunch of guys and a bunch of guys. And so it got old to me, right? It wasn't bad per se, but because it didn't have a lot of depth to it, I got tired of it. And I've noticed after my many, many years of playing video games that I have this opinion about a lot of different games where the more shallow, for lack of a better term, the combat, even if it is good, the more it tends to grade on me the longer I go through the game. This is especially a problem in RPGs, as previously exampled. So, while I did enjoy this game, at the same time, it was just a little bit too little for me. And it was so weird, because when I first let her up, I'm like, yes, awesome! You know, GBA Fire Emblem again. Look, I really liked Seven, okay? In fact, I'm, I'm willing to go ahead and say that I think 7 is still my favorite as of this point, having now added uh, 8, I think, to the list. 9? God, which game is this? <laughs> I have it written down somewhere. Having added this one to the list of games I've now played. So I've played 7, Awakening, 4, and whatever number this one is. I think it's 8. Uh, I still think seven's my favorite of that bundle. So I, I load it up and I'm like, yes, this is going to be great! Okay, this is cool, and oh, they've added this new feature, and they've added this new feature... Okay, so here's another boss, uh-huh. Wow. God, Seth is really overpowered, isn't he? Hang on. Make the rest of my units sit here. Go do the entire map with Seth. Yeah, I can totally do that. <laughs> I also found that the game was a little bit too easy. You know how I know this? Anybody who knows me knows that I tend to cheat on these ruminations after a certain point in the game because I only have a finite amount of time to do two two uh, television ruminations, a Friday rumination, and streams every week. You know, I, I, <laughs> I have to sleep sometime, right? So after a certain point in the game, if it's applicable, if I can, if I need to, I, I fr freely cheat. Uh, I didn't actually cheat through this playthrough because I didn't need to. I just crushed everything like a bug. And I know I am not that good at strategy games. I'm average at strategy games. I enjoy them. You know, I, I, I like it. And every now and again, I, I pull off something amazing, like I have an XCOM 4. But I'm just average overall skill level. I shouldn't have been wrecking everything like that. Unless the game's pretty easy, which I also feel kind of detracted from my enjoyment. The other thing, I was really left with this strange impression. I felt like I was playing an RPG not a tactical RPG. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, 
In my experience, uh, strategy turn-based tactical RPGs tend to have a particular story structure and presentation to them. And as you're going through it, it's like, aha, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to this, and there's usually some politics. And I've talked extensively, in fact, I talked just last week about the marriage of the political aspect and the fantastical aspect and how those two kind of coincide with each other. But this didn't feel like that. It didn't feel like a tactical RPG. And I know it is, but what I mean is this felt more like a standard RPG, like a completely normal JRPG, Dragon Quest, Final Fantasy, Tales of, whatever you want to use for that. Yeez, I don't know. And then it just, instead of the turn-based combat or ATB combat or ARPG combat, it had the tactical thing as its medium of presenting the gameplay. This is something I've been in favor of for a long time, the idea of doing an RPG where you have something other than standard combat in order to progress. I like that concept. In fact, I like that concept a lot. But that helps to, to kind of... <laughs> I don't know what you guys are going to think of this. And in fact, I'm curious of your guys' thoughts, uh, as I always am. But uh, I didn't really... <sighs> the plot wasn't bad... But I, it also felt very non-memorable. I had to actually jot down some notes to remind myself of who certain characters were. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm bad with names in general. But as I looked through, it's like, God, what was that? Was there someone who did such and such? Like, if not for the fact that I wrote down Reeve here, I would be like, I, I'm not even sure I would remember him because he wasn't that memorable of a character. And this is a problem with a lot of the characters in this game. There wasn't even that much of the political side of things. I mean, there's this great nation, and they're going to war. Ah, sudden war, and then kind of it trails off, and then they're defeated. And then the game just kind of keeps going. The war felt like a backdrop rather than part of the actual main story, which can work, by the way. That's not a complaint. But my point being, let's get back to that merger idea, the merger of the political and the fantastical story. I felt like there was no political story here. I felt like this was a straight-up fantasy tale. I mean, let's look at this for a second. We've got Erica in a frame, right? And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing their names correctly. Um, so we've got those two. And they're like, okay, you know, this one's good at politics and diplomacy. That one's good at war and tactics. She is kind and believes in the power of friendship. He must fight in order to prove himself, constantly seeking greater foes. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> And both of them, I, I know what some of you are already thinking, but bear with me on this, okay? Both of them are fighting a guy who is literally only called Demon King in the game. They never actually say Formortius in the game other than the unit. He doesn't even have any real lines of dialogue in the end battle, because you already see... I'll get to that in a second. You are literally two, the two standard JRPG protagonists fighting against a guy called Demon King who was sealed away 800 years ago by an ancient artifact, and then you're going to go fight him and then reseal him away. That's Now, again, none of this is a complaint. That's not where I'm going with this. What it is, however, is a statement that the tone of this game felt completely different from all the other Fire Emblem games I've touched. Now, I know this was intended as a Gaiden game. In fact, this is apparently intended as a direct uh, like follow-through of Fire Emblem Gaiden, from what I was able to understand. But my point is, this didn't feel like Fire Emblem to me. 
even the, the the gameplay features, like we've got an actual overworld, a real honest-to-God overworld, and all of the pluses and minuses that come with that, it allowed you to just go grind if you wanted to, and it allowed you to do things in a relatively loose order of events. It's like, oh shoot, I need to go back to town and go this, and I'm going to go fight these guys for a while. I also noticed that a lot of the enemies you fight are actually creatures, monsters, demons, you know, undead, that kind of a thing, which is also not very Fire Emblem-y. It, it feels like that's different from the usual we're fighting enemy soldiers or troops or maybe empowered troops or whatever. Obviously there were human enemies, but it was something I noticed throughout the whole thing. It just contributed to that overall tone. It felt like someone took the Fire Emblem concept, the, the gameplay, you know, like, like from Fire Emblem 7, and then just grafted a typical JRPG story onto that. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But it left me with this weird feeling the whole way through. To put it into other terms, for those of you who are familiar with my terminologies uh, in the Loriums, I would call this a popcorn game, because I have no particular interest in playing it again. It was enjoyable. You know, it wasn't bad, right? I mean, it even had class branching, which I thought was a great idea. Oh, yeah, what the heck was up with the trainees, too? Like, I get the idea, the lore idea, you know, you're someone who is still learning to be a such-and-such. But I found the trainees to be too much of a hassle to actually be worthwhile, since even by the time they get to the third uh, class, it, they just weren't nearly as powerful as Seth. <laughs> now here's where I'm going to kind of address some of the things I mentioned earlier, because I said, oh my gosh, this game's too easy, and this story is so typical. Here's the really weird part. The story isn't actually all that typical. There's several points at which it takes the classic JRPG tropes and deconstructs them, tries to show them in a different light. Uh, I got three quick notes here really quick. First of all, uh, with regards... Actually, four. I've got four notes about that. Excuse me. Looking at my own notes here. Formotus is the first one. Now, yes, he's the big evil demon guy. He was sealed away centuries ago. He's back. Blah, blah, blah. But Formotus is barely a character. Unlike most other, you know, ancient evil kind of characters, he's not, he, even though he is technically behind everything, he's just not really much of a guy. And yes, I know that a lot of the time when I'm talking to Lion, I'm actually talking to Formortis, Formortis, Formortis God, what kind of name is this? Um, the Demon King. But at the same time, he didn't have, there was no personality there to speak of, and it didn't really feel like he was guiding events so much as his minions were. Now, in a typical JRPG, usually you'll see someone who is like the dragon. That's the TV tropes terminology. The, the, the number two guy, the lieutenant. And that's the guy who usually, or girl, who usually receives tons and tons of characterization. But in this case, that would be Reeve. And Reeve was barely there. He was like, yes, soon the one true demon will be back. <laughs> and that's his character, right? And that's a concept. I noticed that a lot. There were several one-note characters throughout the thing. I actually wrote this down. So Orson, right? What's his note? I, I love my wife. Uh, Reeve. <laughs> uh, Kellak. He, he's just interested in, in advancing his position at any cost. Uh, Valter, who is quite literally cursed to the point where all he's interested in is, you know, the, the bloodlust and conquest, right? Each of these characters felt extremely one-dimensional to me. Uh, but let's get back to that deconstruction point. 
So the evil demon king comes back and is like, ha and then we seal him away. And we beat his life, his basically empty body. That's interesting to me. The usual concept, at least when it's written well, is that we now have something we didn't have then. You know, 800 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years ago, the, the evil demon dude of evilness had to be sealed away because they didn't know what we know. You know, it, it, they didn't have time to formulate a strategy. They didn't have any ancient weapons or powers to draw upon. All they had was what they had at the time, so they decided to go ahead and seal the enemy away and hope that that seal holds or that it eventually can be broken by someone who can actually defeat him. Now we have that knowledge of the forebearers. We know the enemy's coming. We're able to make some kind of fight against them. We have super awesome heroes or super awesome items, and we're able to finally destroy the enemy once and for all. It is a very cliched story, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, as long as it's well done. Here, we just seal him away again. That really weirded me out. In fact, I would love to see some kind of continuation of this setting story-wise. I'm not sure if they have. I didn't see anything about a continuation of this plot or this setting. Because this world seems kind of screwed to me. Like, they just sealed them away again. They don't have as many sacred stones in order to maintain that seal. And, I mean, God, what happened to GLaDOS? Or, GLaDO? GLaDO? The evil kingdom at the end is horrific and ironic because that was one of the things that helped uh, tip off the entire sequence of events. So, what happens, right? What next? This feels like part one of a story, or maybe part two. I don't know. But then we go to uh, Vigard, or Vigard, or Vigarde, or Vigarde. I don't know. If you see his portrait, like, I actually saw his picture before I saw anything else, and I'm like, up, oh, yep, evil emperor, dude, yep, I am the great emperor of the antagonistic power. We shall invade the other nations. <laughs> and one of the things, <laughs> how many times in a typical JRPG have you heard someone say, such and such was really nice until recently, or everything changed once such and such showed up, right? Again, even good RPGs use these kind of uh, concepts, tropes, if you will. So, the idea, that's basically how they presented the emperors. Like, he was this nice, kind person who everyone got along with, and then he decided to invade the rest of the world, because he's Germany. Now, one of the things that I find funny about that is, again, that's totally typical, until you find out he died. Like, a while ago, before the game even started, he was dead. That's actually one of the triggering events that set up the whole sequence of, of the game. <laughs> Then we got Erica. I want to talk about Erica in a special. I, uh, for those curious, I ended up taking Erica's route through my playthrough, partially because of Seth, but partially because I glanced. Um, I'll admit I glanced ahead a little bit when I found out that there was going to be an options, and I wanted to see what was different. And I'll talk about that in a bit. And I liked her route a little bit better. Again, I'll talk about that later. So you know, kind, strong, believe in the power of friendship. I know you're in there somewhere. To you know, you must resist the mind control, Lion. Reach out to me. And no, no, he's actually fully mind controlled, or actually dead. I should say. It's just you know, it's just Formotus, Formortis, and yeah. I loved that the power of friendship was completely subverted there. That it didn't work because it had no capacity to work. 
which is funny given a frame, which is my next point. I must constantly prove myself to be the greatest Dragon Ball fighter. I mean, fighter in all the land. You know, he's, he's got this complete, ah, constantly got to go out and fight things. And then, to, you know, to continue to deconstruct this, to, to show reality ensuing here, we see this guy coming back and be like, oh, everyone doesn't like me. Why? Oh, it's because I'm a warmonger who's been getting way too much power and glory for myself. Hmm. Maybe I should chill a little bit. And he starts to try and adapt and, and develop that. So it's not like the story is completely bare-bones basic. There is some deconstruction. There's some levels there. I hate to keep using that word, deconstruction. There's some... It's the kind of thing where I almost expect it to be A, but then something actually logical happens, and I was like, oh, you know, that pleasant surprise. But I don't have anything else to say about any of the characters I just mentioned, with one exception. Like, what else do I say about Erica? What else do I say about a frame? They'll probably make a great leader between the two of them, since both of them are skilled in one half of the aspects of leadership. Pardon me one moment. Excuse me. But I have nothing else to share about that. I do also want to mention a couple of little tiny details I have here. So I mentioned Orson earlier. I like the idea that Monica is like this horribly deranged, like literally flesh rotting off and like a, an arm is gone, right? And he's just, oh yes, wonderful dearest, everything's gonna be, t everything's gonna be perfect. It just kind of adds to the incredibly, whoo, nature of the character to show just how much gone he is. I only admit that I like that because it amuses me, though. I would rather have something a little more fleshed out than I've decided to betray everything because of Tuwuv. Uh, but Orson's a very monodimensional character, so what do you want from me? Um, I, I wanted to mention about Valter really quick as well. Valter was presented as the type of character... There's usually someone like this in these games. You ever notice that? The person is basically crazy. And they always portray crazy just a little bit differently. In this case, it was uh, bl bloodlust... Bloodlusty? Hmm. Filled with bloodlust, and also just... <laughs> right? And yet, he felt so boring to me. And, and, and again, we find out that he was literally cursed. It's like, oh, I got the spear! <laughs> yes. And it, it, it gets across the idea that he was always this way to some extent or another, but the curse made things a lot more severe for him, making everything worse, basically. You know, good becomes great, bad becomes... Right? I also wanted to mention something uh, about uh, Lion. Because Lion is the one character I have something to talk about. <laughs> it's always the villain, right? <sighs> so I like how Lion's story literally changes depending on which route you pick. Not only because that adds a little bit of you know replay value to the game, ironically, given what I said earlier, but also because, as weird as this may sound, that makes sense to me. I'm going to get into theory mode here for a second, so please forgive me. I like the idea that Lion was strong enough with his friend, Ephraim, in order to maintain some semblance of self against the consumption of his soul that was happening and the influence that uh, the Demon King was putting onto him, but couldn't do the same with Erica that he crumbled before Erica. And the reason why, and this is purely, you know, headcanon, theorycrafting, whatever, is because to me, I think it stretch, it's, 
detaches. That's the wrong word. Uh, grows. That's also not what I want, but whatever. It grows from his relation with each of these characters. He was Ephraim's friend, and Ephraim obviously cared very de- dearly about him, but he also always felt like he was in Ephraim's shadow, which is funny, because if you think about it, Lion is basically better in almost every way. <laughs> I mean, the man's a genius at magic, and apparently practiced dark magic without any negative side effects until recently. Go figure. Anyways, so that rivalry enables him to have something to this is of course interpretation uh, enables him to have something to push back with to say you know no i'm going to keep doing this and i'm going to be better than you and I, in order to prove that i'm better than you i have to be doing it i have to maintain myself even though i'm doing all these horrible things because if i don't i'm not going to prove my strength and my worth to you by contrast to Erica, he just sees the woman that he loves and wants to be with and wants to be better for. And so he doesn't feel that intense drive or push with her. Instead, he feels guilt. And guilt crumbles him and destroys him to the point where there is no lion anymore. Instead, there's just Formortis. And, you know, his, his soul is completely consumed by him. And all that's left is this shell. Now, that's the way I look at it, and as ever, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this one. I also, uh, I want to talk about the earthquake. That's the last thing I want to talk about. I know this is kind of a short video. The earthquake that was prophesized and then later ended up coming true. It's pretty much the impetus for everything. couple theories on this one. One of the things that's stated in-game is that the earthquake was divine punishment for what they did. Now, obviously, I don't buy that. Um, but that is, of course, something that could be. After all, this is a setting in which the people prayed to the heavens and actually got <laughs> literal artifacts as a consequence for this thing. So maybe that is literally what it is. Screw you, you were awful. It would be very Greek for that to happen. But I don't... It feels a little bit too simple for me, especially for a game that, as I mentioned earlier, was trying to do more realistic reactions to typical RPG tropes. The second possibility is that uh, Fomortis had something to do with it. Either he was the one who beamed the knowledge into uh, Lion to begin with, or he was the one who caused it after the fact because he was less weakened as a result of the other sacred stones being destroyed and therefore had this kind of influence and would lead once again into kind of a, you know, to-be-continued kind of a thing because, you know, he's still able to influence the land in such a manner. For the record, I don't quite buy that one either, but it would make it interesting because that would very much make this whole thing a very self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Lion decided, oh, I've got to do whatever I must to stop this, releases Formortis to the point where he has the valor to do this, and in revenge, Formortis, and that's the end of the southern half of the land. I actually like a third idea, though, because this appeals to my sensibilities as a writer. I like the idea that the earthquake was just an earthquake. It was just going to happen, and that's it. It has no divine, no magical, no manipulated, no nothing. It was an earthquake, a natural disaster. And his divination of that allows him to like, oh my god, this is this horrible thing. I must do whatever I can in order to stop this horrible thing from happening. And he doesn't cause it, but he also doesn't prevent it. Because his actions are inconsequential compared to it. 
All he did was ensure that his kingdom was in a worse way in almost every way so that they did, couldn't properly deal with this. And the only, let's be honest with ourselves, if not for Erica in a frame, there's pretty good chance nobody would have been able to deal with that at all, right? It also means that his, because I hate prophecies that are vague or untrue, that's just something that aggravates me, it means that he saw an event that actually was real, and, I mean, I guess that's true in all three cases, but my point being, that still appeals to me in that case, rather than the, I was giving you a fake vision thing, which could be interpreted from the second option. I don't know, what do you guys think? I, uh... I don't really have much else to say about this game. I'm just glancing over my notes right now, but I really don't have anything else to share. It was still enjoyable to go through, I swear. I just don't have a lot to talk about. Next week we'll be doing even more Fire Emblem, which is a much longer Fire Emblem game, uh, which we'll be doing only one of, so no worries there. Regardless, I'll see you guys next time.